I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and join with me in the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. While you're turning, the ushers do have sermon notes. They're blank today, but if you would like to follow along, just raise your hand. They'll hand that to you. Let me make one other announcement before I pray, and that is um, several of you have asked if our family, if there's an address, you can send my brother a card. We're posting that. You can get that afterwards at the Track Rack Bulletin Board. Let me have a word of prayer. Then they'll continue handing out those notes. We're just going to stop for a moment and pray, then get back into the Word. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to worship. Thank you for the time we have to sing. But now as we come to the important part of the service where we honor you by listening to your Word and letting you speak to us, I pray that you would help me to speak with clarity of mind and of spirit and of heart and that you would use this message, though many here have heard this message before. I pray that you would help us to be drawn, to be challenged, to become closer to Christ as a result of it so that it helps us this week, this month, a little bit more. Thank you for your word, for the examples, and thank you for even recording some of the blemishes of believers so that we have the hope that we can enjoy closeness with you no matter what we've done in the past. We pray that you would bless this time of study in Christ's name. Amen. We had a conference here a couple weeks ago. Tremendous message. Dave Rudolph preached a message that I must be honest that while he was preaching it that Sunday morning, at first I'm thinking, what in the world are you doing preaching on Elijah and depression in a missions conference? And as he went through the passage, then it became more and more clear and evident to me how God had put this together for that moment. But he shared the story about a man of God, a great man of God, who all of a sudden slipped, fell into discouragement, depression, and ruined an entire revival. That's not the only one in Scripture that we find that. We find an Abraham who has left his homeland where he grew up for years and all of a sudden he gets in his camper, he moves and goes as far as God says and God says to him, park here after he's traveled for weeks. And he's had that God experience of talking to him, that God experience of knowing that God had him put in this exact spot at this moment, the thrill of knowing and having that confidence, then a famine strikes the land. And he kind of falters in his faith and he runs down into Egypt and it gets worse. When he's down there, he lies about his wife being his sister. You know, she was a half-sister. But he lies about it and endangers both he and his family and all around him. He's not the only one. David had great experience of putting the nation of Israel together, binding them when there was separation amongst the tribes, when there was, when there was division being caused and he united them under his crown. He then goes in and develops the city of Jerusalem. He starts building up the nation to the point that they have their golden years. They have the greatest years. And then when he's meeting that pinnacle, that climax of his rule and reign, he stays at home when other kings go to war. And there, after having such great success and having the blessings of God, he's on his rooftop and he gets engaged with lust by looking where he shouldn't look sees Bathsheba bathing. They engage in, in forbidden sexual relations since they're both married to somebody else. Here's this great saint, this apple of God's eye falling into such heinous sin. They're not the only one. We can go through Scripture. We can find other accounts. We can find of a whole, whole church body in the book of Acts that they are experiencing great, great revival and, and salvation of souls 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 getting saved. And they're excited and things are going so good for that church in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, when they're reaching that climax of, of having all these experiences, down the aisle comes Ananias and Sapphira. They're pretending. They're, they're lying about their sacrifice. 
God strikes them dead. Great fear into the church body. You would think that would clear up all the problems in the church, but you read another chapter later. There's division in the church. There's debate in the church. There's all kinds of activity and scuttlebutt going on because certain people, certain sectors, they're not feel like, feeling like they're being treated as well as others. You have this occurring time and time again. That after great mountaintop experiences, there's a valley. We've just had a mountaintop experience. We have just come through a fantastic month, and especially a missions conference, that has been phenomenal. We would be foolish to think that we can ride this crest and never have any problems or temptations. You see, after every mountain, there's the valley. You and I need to be so cautious as individuals and as a church body of those challenges, those difficulties that lay ahead of us in these next weeks, of those temptations to get caught off guard, to walk away, to become complacent and at ease. We need to be very, very, very careful these next weeks as a church body, as staff, as deacons, as Sunday school teachers, as fellow worshipers, we've got to be careful. To be careful means we need to stay close to Christ. There's one example of Scripture that is very, very relevant at this time of the season who portrays that better than anybody else. It's Peter, our dear friend Peter, who is a faithful, faithful servant of God. He is one of those that is so outstanding in his worship and his faith and his work for the Lord. I mean, think about it. He's one of the very first converts of Jesus Christ. One of the very first disciples to follow Christ right after his baptism. He is the one who is given outstanding teaching. He is one of the few that walked within that inner circle of Jesus. Very few people saw Jesus transfigured. Peter was one of those three. Very few people spoke with the confidence theologically to say, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. No other disciple did he say, Unto you do I give the keys of the kingdom. We get all kinds of confusion about that, but understand maybe this puts it in perspective. Is that back in Bible days when somebody graduated from Pharisaical seminary, what they would give them is not a diploma, but they would give them a set of keys. The key is symbolizing that you have the key to unlocking truth. Well, right after Peter, who is the only one that is stated to, that you are Peter upon this kingdom, I'll build and I give you the keys of the kingdom. He had just said, you are the Christ. He had that insight. He is the only one that I know of that's ever walked on water besides Jesus. He is one of the few disciples that went to visit the tomb. This guy is an outstanding disciple. He is a great man of God. He is one of the few in the New Testament that we get record of his preaching, how he goes out, and we know that while he was a disciple, he went out and he preached, he cast out demons. We know all of that. And what we know about this man, that is a lesson for all of us, is that number one, faithful believers can fall. Even the most faithful believers can fall, you and me included. That's why we need to stay so close to Christ. Because you can fall in the, some of the most heinous and difficult moments. And you all know what I'm talking about. When Jesus is arrested, who is the one that follows him into the courtyard and then denies Jesus three times? It's faithful Peter. 
Faithful believers can fall. And usually, friend, it doesn't happen suddenly. Usually it doesn't happen by just, ooh, all of a sudden, wham, bang, and it's there. Usually it's a very gradual thing. Usually a kind of like a slippery slope. The story that I've told you before is that I took, uh, went up to preach at a children's camp up at Camp Calvary, which is just about 10 miles away from here. They have this huge hill in their camp. Well, I went up there one winter weekend right after a deacon's meeting, and I took Tony with me when Tony was about six years old. We went up there, and I was going to preach at the children's camp that evening, and I did, and I preached. But I had left a deacon's meeting, so I had, you know, this kind of attire on. And I went up there, preached to the kids. And then afterwards, after I was done, Pastor Hall said to the kids, Hey, kids, we're going to go sledding. Don't you think Pastor Bergraff should go with us? And it was like, yeah, right. He said, no, no, you really want to go. Then now they've got this hill that to me seems like 10 miles high. You know, it seems like it's the Alp. It's not, but it looks like it to me when I'm up on top of it. And it had just sleeted the night before. So this thing was icy slippery. And so what they do is they haul up all the inner tubes. And so for me, they hauled up a big truck inner tube. Okay, so that I could fit in it. Because the reason he got me to go up was he said to Tony, now Tony, would you like your daddy to take you up on the hill? And it was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Daddy, please, 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 please. And being the good dad that spoils their kids, it was like, yeah, Tony, we can do it one time. One time. So we go to lug up the hill. We get up there. We got the inner tube up there. We put it down. And I'm waiting for all the kids to go. I figured they'll, you know, they'll go. They'll wipe out. Tony will be shocked, scared. He will not want to go once he sees them all tumbling down this hill. And by the way, halfway down the hill, there's a tree. Right in the middle of the hill, there's one tree. One of the kids, you know, I'm not praying for it to happen. But, well, if one of the kids hits the tree, then Tony won't want to go. So, Lord, please... And so they're going down, you know, there I'm watching Wayne to go, and Pastor Hall says, hey, don't you think Pastor Burgraff should go first? And it's like, no, I don't. They said, no, he wants to go. Tony, don't you want to go first? Yeah, dad, yeah, 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 dad. So we get into the inner tube, and they, you know, Pastor Hall says, we're going to launch you. So all 50 campers get behind and they're going to push. Not as if it's not going to go fast enough, but now they've got to slingshot this thing out of there. So all of a sudden we start down the hill. Within seconds, 200 miles an hour going down this hill. <laughs> what tuft I had was blowing away. We're going down this hill and Tony starts, Dad, stop it! And I'm going, I can't hardly hear him because I'm going, we're going to die! We're going down the hill and we're flying down and you know how things happen, your whole life goes in slow motion? Okay, you ever been in an auto accident? Everything slows down. This is what it's like. Okay, we're going down, and I'm thinking, I gotta stop this thing. I gotta stop this. We're gonna hit that tree. I just know that tree's in the dark somewhere coming up on us. So I did the only wise thing. I stuck my feet out. I'm the only idiot in the room that would have thought of that. Yeah, that's what happens. If you stick your feet out, you turn around. Okay. Now we're going backwards down the hill. And Tony goes, Dad, what you doing? I'm going, I don't know. <laughs> we're going down this hill, and now I know for sure we're going to die. We're just going to hit that thing, and our heads are going to go first into the tree. So I'm thinking, I've got to stop this thing, got to stop this thing, got to stop it. I know how. I'll drop anchor. <laughs> I'll just sit further into the tube. It'll stop this, this inner tube. It's going to stop. So I dropped anchor, pushed further down, I got to tell you, polyester pants don't do good on ice. So all of a sudden, it's getting really hot, okay? We're going down this, too, this thing, and eventually we stopped. Within about from here to the wall of the building away, we stopped. And we get up, 
and polyester is gone. So I'm walking around the rest of the evening like this just because there's nothing back here anymore. Tony's first comment. Let's do it again, Dad. Let's do it again. Have you ever started down a slippery slope and it's really hard to stop? Sin is like that. You have the situation with Peter starting down this slippery slope where he denies Christ. It didn't happen when it, in that evening when he was around that campfire in the courtyard. It started before that. Join me in going back a little bit story, in the story that evening. Go back to Mark 14. Jump down and to see where it started. Verse 26. It started when all of a sudden Peter, the reason he comes to a time when a faithful believer falls and denies, it starts when the believer like Peter believes he's the exception to the rule. Or let me put it this way. He is overconfident about his faith. See what happens. Matthew or Mark 14 verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, All you shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before. Peter, Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended. Lord, you're absolutely right. John, he's going he's gonna to mess it up. James, he's going to mess up. Andrew, I know my brother, he's going to mess up. All these other guys, they, they'll mess up. But, what's he say? Not me. Not me. It doesn't apply. What your warning says, what you are relating through Scripture, what you are quoting from the Old Testament and predicting, it's not going to happen to me. I'm the exception to the rule. Yes, yes, it's true. It's true. Other people, they, they need to read their Bible. They need to pray every day. They need to be in church. But not me. I'm strong enough. Other people's kids, they better discipline them. They better work at raising those kids right and having a fear of God, but I don't need to do that same thing. Other people, they need to be careful what they look for on the computer. They better watch their eyes, but I can handle it. I don't have those same issues. Other marriages, they better really, really, really work. They better go on dates. They better spend time together, but hey, we're solid as a rock. We're not going to have any problem. You see, the point is, faithful believers fall when believers start believing that they are the exception to the rule. When they don't have to follow the word of God. When they don't have to do what God says about baptism, about joining a church, about sharing the word of God, because I'm the exception. That applies to other believers, to get involved with missions and to support missions and to pray for missions. But I don't need to. We're the exception. Those other teens, they better listen to Pastor Art. They better do what he's in, uh, getting them involved in. But we're okay. We don't need to do. When you start on the path that believes you are an exception and you can get away with anything, it's amazing where we'll end up. We can end up in the most tragic of places because we start down a slippery slope and it always works this way. Once we start and we say, oh, I can take that one drink. I can take that one cigarette. I can take that one curse word. I can take that one dirty story. It won't affect me because I'll never do it again, right? Isn't it amazing? Sin is like Lay's potato chips. You can't eat just one. My stupid, 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 stupid move. My story, stupid story, 
My dad says to me one day, he says, you need to get rid of the dog. I'm, I'm 16, just got my license. My dad says, get rid of the, the dog. We had several dogs, uh, two dogs at our house. One was Pebbles, who was from heaven, could talk. It was the most smartest animal in the world. The other dog was the world's dumbest dog. It was my sister's. It was called Mitzi. And we gave, my mom and dad gave Mitzi to my sister for her birthday. And my sister said, I'll love it. I'll take care of it. She moved into an apartment. They couldn't have pets. And so Mitzi came back to our house. Well, Mitzi was a dumb dog. The dog was so dumb, it was just, you know, it couldn't teach it tricks. All you could teach it was, you know, just stand around like that. It was a cockapoo. I don't know if that has anything to do with stupidity, but it was a cockapoo. And the cockapoo would do this one thing. It would just jump up on people. Well, we had a business, a gas station. The dogs were kept outdoors. So when people would come, especially on Sundays, to get gas, they don't want a dog that's filled with dirt and mud jumping up on them. You lose customers. And so we had lost enough customers, and my dad said, you got to get rid of that dog. We're going to go away for the weekend. Bonnie's away for the weekend. You take care of that dog. I said, you have your permission? Get rid of the dog. (sighs) All right. So too much zeal in my heart, okay? Those of you who are pet lovers, please forgive me. We're at the outset, okay? So I determined I'm going to get rid of the dog on Friday night. And so I, I can't do this myself, so I have to get my friend. So I asked Tim Primusberger, you come and help me. And Tim was so, I don't know if I can do it. And so I got into alcohol and all kinds of things to bribe him into doing it. And so we take the dog out to a real, 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 real far place in the country, about 40 miles from our house. And up in the, up into the woods of Minnesota, it's in a Harding uh, Lastrop area. We took it away. And I'm thinking, we're going to get rid of the dog. There'll be no evidence. So we drive up there. We have the gun in the back seat. The dog's in the back seat. <laughs> You know, all, you know, licking, get away, dog, get away. And so we're driving out there, get out there. And I grabbed the dog when we parked by the side of the road, and I pulled the dog out, <laughs> put the dog down, and it said, stay there, stay there, stay there. The dog follows, get back down there, stay there. I go back, and I grab the rifle, again, forgive me, we grab the rifle, and I hand it to Tim. He looks, I can't do it, it's so cute, I can't do it. And he's crying. It's like, I brought you all this way. I bribed you, and you aren't, you know, I didn't go through all this effort. One thing that I may be stupid, but I'm also stubborn. And so it's like, you can ask my wife about that one. Um, so I said, give me the gun. They took the gun, and the dogs went. <laughs> Boom. Oh, it's... <laughs> the dog falls over. Dog gets up. <laughs> it's a resurrected dog. And so it's like, you know, reload this thing, and the dog stops going. <laughs> the dog runs into the ditch. And so it's like, where'd you go, dog? Here, here, Mitzi, Mitzi. As if the dog's coming back to me. Here, Mitzi, 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 here, Mitzi. Can't find the dog. I know I hit it. Okay, there's evidence, you know. I know that he didn't really resurrect. I know the dogs, you know, can't find the dog, so I'll get back in the car. And so I get in the car, put it in gear. Tim, get in the car, let's go. Dog, you know, start driving in from the back seat. <laughs> it had gone around the car in the back seat, and it's like, oh, brother, now the car's a mess. Now I've got to get out and get out. Grab that dog. Dog's licking me. <laughs> you know, put the dog down. Go back to the car. Grab the gun. Come back out. And the dog... <laughs> And turns and bolts and runs down the road. Get in the car, Tim. We're in the car. We're chasing a dog down the road at about 60 miles an hour. 
you know, dirt road, curves, this dog can book it. You know, wounded animal, wow, it's amazing. It's not only a resurrected dog, it's got superpowers. And the thing is gone, and we're chasing it, and all of a sudden it goes in the ditch. We can't find it, can't find it, can't find it. So after about an hour or two, it's like, okay, let's go home. So we go home, everything's calm, cool, sleep the night, and everybody comes home on Sunday. That was Friday night. Sunday comes home. And we're all, they're all walking in the house. My dad says, do you hear the dog? It's like, take care. And my sister comes in. She goes, where's Mitzi? Oh, Bonnie. It is so sad. Mitzi's dead. No, what happened to my dog? There was a truck. Huge truck. The biggest truck I've ever seen in my life. Mitzi went running after the truck. You know how one lie spawns another lie? So, you know, and so, Bonnie, the dog didn't listen. The dog got run over. Oh, no, Mitzi's dead. And I'm going, yeah, it's really sad. <laughs> so it's, you know, telling her story. And then she says, where did you bury Mitzi? <laughs> Hadn't thought about that one. <laughs> um, we buried her out in the field out back. I want to go see where you buried so I can put a grave marker on it. It's, Bonnie, it's a field. I still want to see. Oh, Bonnie, the farmer just plowed the field yesterday. I don't know where. He may have plowed up Mincy. I want to go check. Uh, it was getting worse. Bonnie, I was so distraught I couldn't bury the dog. Tim had to bury the dog, and Tim's out of town now. I don't know where he's out in the field back here. Okay, got away with that lie. Got it, and it just got compounded until about a month and a half later. Four weeks later. It's Easter weekend. Speaking of resurrected dogs. It's Easter weekend. And it's a Friday evening and everybody comes home for the Friday evening for Easter weekend. And we're sitting there in the living room talking and somebody said, hey, something's at the back door. And all of a sudden at the back door from the back of the house I hear my brother say, hey, Wayne, come here. I go back there, and there is Mitzi. <laughs> Burrs and thistles and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, as quick as I can, either that dog's dying or I'm dying. One of the two, because Bonnie's in the other room. And it's like, what do I do? So I ran to the bedroom. This gets worse, I'm telling you. I run to the bedroom. I grab the gun, another one. I know I'm vile. I understand that. Okay. I grab the gun. I grab the dog, and I'm running towards the yard. You know, around, sneaking around the back of the house, headed for the car, and out the window in the house, I hear my brother go, Hey, Bonnie, come here, look what Wayne's got. <laughs> uh, and he was like, Oh, Lord, how do I get out of this one? And all of a sudden, I hear from the house, Betsy's alive, you're dead. She, they all come running out. Everybody is out there, and my dad's got to hold my sister back from grabbing the gun and shooting me. And so there's all this confusion is going on, and she's saying, you know, what happened to my dog? Uh, 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 and I don't have anything to say. And finally I come up with the only rational thing. I said, Dad told me to. <laughs> By the way, he did. Okay? That was the first honest thing I said in this whole thing. He goes, I don't know anything about it. I have no idea. That's him. That dog lived with us for about another 15, 20 years. My mom took the dog to the vet in its latter days, and the vet goes, this is Burgraff. Do you know there's a shell in its forehead right here? 
that's amazing. I've never seen that on an x-ray before. My mom goes, I don't have any clue how that got into that. <laughs> now you know why I lie. I inherited it all. You get into a situation and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And then you embarrass yourself by telling those stories and the other people think, oh, you are a dog killer. I am. Okay? Well, I tried to be. I, I failed as a dog killer. But things get worse. Peter starts believing he's the exception. Then it gets worse. He started operating in the flesh, behaving according to the flesh. Watch what happens. Here he is in Mark saying, I'm not going to deny you, I'm not going to deny you. But go a little bit further in Mark 14. Watch. In Mark 14, we go down a little bit further, and here all of a sudden, we get down into verse 32. They came to a place which is named Gethsemane, and he says, sit here while I pray. Now, you do remember that from the other passages, he asked them not only to sit there, but what did Jesus ask the disciples to do? to pray as well. Watch with him. And so he says, he takes with him Peter, James, John began to be sore amazed. And he said, my soul is sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little, fell on the ground, prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass. And we get the prayer, verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And he comes and finds them sleeping and says unto Peter, Simon? Isn't it interesting? He speaks to Peter. Simon? You're sleeping. Couldn't you watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again he went and prayed in the same words. And when he returned, he found what? He found them asleep again. Neither wist they what to answer him. And he comes a third time. And he said, sleep on now and take your rest. It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed. Rise up, let us go. And immediately, while he spake, Judas, one of the twelve, came with him with a great multitude, 600 cohort, of swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes. And he that betrayed him had given them this token, saying, Whomsoever I kiss, that same as he, take him, lead him away. And as soon as he was come, he goes straight forward to Jesus, master, master, and kissed him, and laid hands on, their, on him, and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword, smote a servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. And Jesus said, are you come out against the thief with swords and staves? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not. But the scriptures must be fulfilled, and then they all forsook. But do you remember what the other gospels reveal? He also warned Peter that those who live by the sword will... Yeah, and he tells Peter, stop, stop. Here you've got Peter all of a sudden behaving according to the flesh, becoming very impulsive, very, very erratic. Because, one, he's woken out of a deep sleep. Have you ever seen somebody woken out of a deep sleep that becomes erratic? That all of a sudden does something because they come out of the slumber? Well, Jesus had said, pray with me, pray with me. But Peter was so involved with what his body wanted, what his body needed, what he, what he felt like that he just slept. He gets rebuked, he sleeps. He gets rebuked, he sleeps. He can't pray. And then what happens is afterwards, all of a sudden when there's a threat, he pulls out his pocket knife, he rushes, cuts off Malchus's ear. As if with a pocket knife he's going to take on 600 soldiers. Really, Peter? You've got a lot of bravado, Peter. You're a brave man, but boy, are you dumb. Attacking 600 men. Why is it that believers sometimes do foolish things in the flesh? Why is it sometimes preachers get up behind the pulpit like I've done before? You get up behind the pulpit and you start preaching and you let something in the auditorium get under your nerves and all of a sudden you're reacting in the flesh. 
Why is it sometimes in fellowship saints refuse to talk to one another because they're angry over something? They're angry over something that happened at, at some other place, some other situation, but they carry it right in with their Christian service. Why is it that all of a sudden parents become impulsive at times and instead of disciplining correctly, all of a sudden they discipline in anger? Why is it we operate in the flesh? May I suggest something? When we aren't praying the way we should be, when we're not close to Christ and doing what he asks us to do, we miss the the empowering of the Spirit. We miss discerning properly. If Peter had stayed awake and had listened and prayed with Jesus, would he have not heard, thy will be done? Would he have not heard that Christ was willingly going to take the cup? Let the, that he was willingly surrendering himself. But his lack of prayer, he was di- lack of discerning. And all of a sudden he's operating in the flesh, does something totally stupid, like running out, lying, cheating, disca- trying to cover up stuff. It just got worse and worse for Peter that night. But Peter believed he was the exception. Then he starts operating in the flesh, and then, and then, he balks at the opportunities. All of a sudden, he is overcome by fear. He gets into the garden place. And he gets there or the court place. Now everybody has scattered from the garden. They take Jesus down to the courtyard. And when they take him to the courtyard, Peter follows. Though he was told, I'll meet you in Galilee. He is following. He's the exception to the rule, remember. He is operating in the flesh, remember. He gets to the courtyard. And when he comes to the courtyard, he's going to be confronted by people. And fear takes over. Boy, fear can, can make us do some stupidest stuff, foolish things. Because most of us aren't as quick as this fellow I just heard about last week. My neighbor was telling me about a nephew who works in the Allentown. He works as a nutritionalist down in Allentown. And so he was going from one place to another place a couple weeks ago in Allentown. He had his badge on, nutritionalist badge, and different things, going from one house to a business place to another business place. And they had to drive through a seedy section of the town. And when he came to this stoplight, he was stopped there, and he was doing something on his phone, filling out his report. And all of a sudden, he saw out of the corner of his eye somebody come running towards his vehicle. The guy all of a sudden jumped on the hood of his car, slid across, and rolled off. And he's going, what in the world? And then the guy jumped up and said, he hit me! He hit me with his car! He hit me! And immediately, they said that several others who were on the street, yeah, yeah, we saw it! We saw it! You better pay up, buddy! And there was a crowd within a minute, a crowd of 12, 15 people say, you better pay up or else, you better pay up or else. The guy in the car is like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'm just a nutritionist. What am I going to do? He looks down his badge, opened up his car, held up his badge. I'm an off-duty police officer. All of you stand still. I'm going to get your names and addresses. They scattered to the wind. (laughs) Now, most of us aren't that quick. To all of a sudden get out of a situation. Peter was not that quick. Peter is all of a sudden confronted. And he's challenged. Read the story. Peter is all of a sudden confronted and challenged. Where all of a sudden this is big time trouble for Peter. They start asking him questions. Down to verse 66. Peter was beneath in the palace. There comes one of the maids. And when she saw Peter warming himself. She looked upon him and said. 
you were also with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it, saying, I know not, will neither understand I what you say. And he went out of the porch and the cock crew. A maid saw him again and began to say to him the same thing. This is one of them. He denied it again. And a little after, they that stood by said again to Peter, Surely you are one of them. You are a Galilean and your speech agrees. But he began to curse and to swear, make vows, saying, I know not this man. Let me add something here. It doesn't read this way in the English, but it reads in the original this way, that when they are asking him, they are making it easy for Peter. You're not one of them, are you really? We think we saw you in Galilee, but are we mistaken? We think you're one of them, but you're not really one of them, are you? And so it was very slick. It was very easy for him to just go along and say, no, no, but here the fact is, he denies the Lord. How does a faithful believer get to the point that they're denying the Lord? Because they're overcome by fear. Why? Because they haven't been praying enough, so they're operating in the flesh. Why? Because they believe they're the exception to the rule. I don't need to pray. I don't need to follow Christ that closely. I don't need to get, get near him like the others. This, is, this story of Peter is for somebody else. Other teens better be listening. Other parents better be listening. But not me. I'm good enough. Other churches better beware. Other preachers better beware. But I, I can get away with it. I'm different than everybody else. I'm different than the Lots and the Davids and, and the Elijahs. I, don't, I won't ever fall that far. Faithful believers can fall. Let's talk about some of our missionaries. Let's talk about the need to replace one of our missionaries who got dabbling where he shouldn't be dabbling and jeopardized his marriage. Therefore, he's off the field. Let's talk about kids who grew up in Faith Baptist Church, go on missions trips with us. And all of a sudden, when they get out of high school, they no longer need to be respectful. They no longer lead church. It's not that bad to start doing the bar hopping. Others will fall, but no, I will never get that bad. Let's talk about the life of someone we love who all of a sudden just got deeper and deeper and deeper in worse scenario after worse scenario till Chris and Linda have to hold a funeral last fall. Let's talk about taking a trip. I'm going to Phoenix. Only daughter. A daughter who became estranged from my brother. Had a full scholarship to Arizona University for her musical ability. She could play five instruments. Saved as a 14-year-old, professed Christ, even considered missions work at one time. Goes off to college, and in college, I don't need to be in church. I don't need to be following the Word of God that closely. I'm okay. Mom and Dad will have that covered. Let me walk you through a story of somebody who started dabbling in the things that were offered, thinking they're the exception, the alcohol, the drugs, they're the exception. Then come with me this week and stand there in a funeral service for a 38-year-old who got so caught up and controlled by the things that they'll never happen to me. I'm the exception. Became to a point that their life was totally overwhelmed by fear. You think you're the exception? You're not. I'm not. Faithful believers can fall. 
We need to stay close to Christ. Now what happens if you find yourself caught in a situation where you're lying and lying and lying to cover up? What happens if you're one of those who are sitting here this morning and, and, you, and you've got those closet sins? Well, the porn or the greed or the stealing or the thievery. What happens when you say, I've gone too far? That is not true. That is not true and Peter's the truth. Though he hit rock bottom, let me give you another thought here. Why you should get close to the Lord, number one is because faithful believers can fall. But for those who have fallen, this is the important truth. Fallen believers can be forgiven. Fallen believers can be forgiven. Watch what happens to Peter. He denies the Lord. He has made his statements about denying. And we read in Mark 14, verse 72. And he, when he thought thereon, he wept. Oh, you could jump with me to Matthew that says, and he wept bitterly. Can you imagine the man that you gave up your business for? The man that you've been following for the last two years. That you have said, I will die for this man. You even risked pulling out your pocket knife. And you attacked a group of 600. You were serious. You meant it. You would die for him. You got out of a boat to walk with him on the water. You really, really love this guy. And you denied him. Now you find yourself so overcome by guilt by anguish, by disappointment where some of us have been. Where we have done something against the Lord and we are ripped in two and we are feeling like we are not worthy. Surely he can't forgive me, which was a statement made by my niece just a couple years ago. I don't think God could ever forgive me. Fallen believers can be forgiven. We read as we go on in this text that here is this man who is so broken. Let's jump a day and a half later. Chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 1. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, the mother of James and Salome, had brought the sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came to the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said, who's going to roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? Verse 4. They looked and they saw the stone was already rolled away. It was a big stone. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were afraid. He said unto them, be not affrighted, or stop being afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Look at verse 7. Mark a phrase in verse 7. Go your way, tell his disciples, the next two words. And who? Why does he point out Peter? We have a Lord that loves. We have a Lord that forgives. We have a God who can take even dog murderers or attempted murderers and forgive them. We have a God who can forgive young ladies who drift off into alcohol or drugs. He can forgive fallen believers. We have a God who can forgive parents who have abused their kids. We have a God who can forgive a husband or wife who's not been faithful. We have a God who can forgive any sin and is willing 
Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of it. Problem is, we don't run the right way. Gal's driving through Michigan. She pulls into a truck stop. She goes inside, does whatever she needs to do, comes back out, and she gets into her truck, and when she hops in her truck, there was a truck driver parked over there, farther down the lot. He jumps out, he yells at her, Hey, lady, hey, lady! She doesn't know him. She gets in the car and starts taking off. She sees in her mirror that he turns around, he runs back to the truck. He hops in the truck, and he kind of, she can tell, he guns it. The truck is jerking really fast, like he's moving, not in a slow, steady speed, but he's trying to, I think this guy's after me. So she speeds up out of the rest stop way, and she starts going down the road. The truck gets on the road and speeds up and gets right behind her. She becomes absolutely terrified. She's by herself. This truck driver is meaning to do her harm. She's got to get away. She's got to get away. It's dark out. What do I do? And she drives thinking, I'll go up the next exit ramp. And when I go up the exit ramp, I'll pull off somewhere and call for help. She pulls up. There's nothing there. The truck is coming up the ramp. She shoots across the road, comes down the other side. The truck goes through the stop sign all the way down and is following her down the ramp onto the highway again. She is now getting to a point where she is crying. She is terrified. She starts screaming, help, help. Nobody can hear. She's in her car. She's driving and she sees another truck stop up ahead. She pulls off the road. She drives into it. She barely stops her car before she's opening the door and trying to get out. The truck comes right behind her to a screeching halt. The truck driver jumps out and starts running towards her. She's trying to get up. She falls down to the ground. She's yelling, help, help, help. The truck driver reaches her car. He grabs, pulls open the back door of her car, reaches in and pulls a guy who had crawled into her back seat. Pulls the guy out, tackles him to the ground, and gets the knife away from the guy. She was running from the wrong person. The person who meant her harm was the one who was closest to her. The truck driver was her rescuer. Jesus Christ doesn't mean you harm when he brings conviction from his word. Jesus Christ isn't trying to hurt you by having some friend or preacher or somebody come to you and talk to you about the need for repentance, the need for change. Jesus Christ is your rescuer from danger ahead. He wants to help you. Problem is, too many believers even run from Jesus. Like, oh, he's going to ask me to do something that's going to hurt me. He's trying to rescue you from that which would damage you forever. Or get you chained into some sin or some attitude that could drive you to the very pits of despair. You see, Jesus Christ is so gracious and loving, he wants to forgive you. You need to stay close to him. Even if you drifted and you find yourself one of those people that are like Peter, that have balked, that are behaving according to the flesh, who are, who are now being overcome by fear, who are being, thinking they're the exception, you need to get back close to Christ. Why? Because faithful believers can fall. Fallen believers can be forgiven. It doesn't end there. You want to see real beauty? Forgiven believers can be fruitful. They can be fruitful. Watch, watch. Jesus comes to Peter. We also have, by the way, if you were to look in Luke 24, you would hear and read that Jesus appeared to Peter 
during Resurrection Sunday that nobody else heard about, but he appeared to Peter. Then after that, he's going to have another conversation with Peter. So I'm going to invite you to go to Luke. I'm sorry, John. John chapter 21. I want you to see what Jesus says several weeks later to Peter. He gets Peter alone when, when Peter is there fishing. Jesus is going to come and he's going to, he's going to have a conversation with Peter. So Jesus on the seashore yells out to Peter and the friends in the boat. He says, have you caught anything? Throw your net on the other side. It is such a huge, miraculous load of fish. Peter says, it's the Lord. And Peter does what Peter does. He, by impulsiveness, he bails out of the boat, leaves the arrest of him to deal with the fish. He swims to shore. He gets to shore. And he's worshiping with Jesus. He's having a time with Jesus. By the time the others come, Jesus has a conversation with Peter. Fabulous, fabulous conversation. Watch in John chapter 21. Jesus says, verse 12, he says, come and dine, and none of the disciples asked, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus comes, takes the bread, gives it to them, the fish. This is the third time Jesus showed himself to the disciples that he was risen. When they had dined, verse 15, Jesus turns to Peter. Simon, his old name. Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me more than these? I don't think it's the fish. This is my personal opinion. I don't think he's talking, do you love me more than the fish? Peter had said before, Though everyone else shall deny you, yet not I. I love you more than anybody else loves you. Implication. So Jesus is saying to Peter, do you love me more than these? I think, do you think you love me more than the rest of these men? And Peter responds. Because before he was arrogant. And he, before he thought he was the exception. And he says, Lord, you know I love you. He's using a different word for love. Jesus said, do you agape me? No, Lord, I really, I like you, like you, like you an awful, awful lot. He's cautious. He says, okay, feed my lambs. Are you kidding me? He denied you. You're putting your lambs in his care? He said to him again, Simon, do you agape me? He said, Lord, you know I like you so much. Feed my sheep. Then he says it a third time. Why does he ask three times? What did Peter just do to Jesus weeks before? Simon, son of Jonas, do you really like me that much? Peter is grieved because he said unto him, third time, lovest thou me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. My point is this. He gave him responsibility after he was forgiven. He gave him opportunity after he was forgiven. He put his sheep, his lambs in his care. Acts chapter 2, he goes out and preaches his first sermon. He gets up and he preaches and the response to his first message, I remember my first message. It is such an embarrassment. I hope it's destroyed. I remember my first pastorate being away from here. I hope they've ruined all those messages and wiped them out. His first message, he gets up to preach. 3,000 people get saved. Acts 4, he preaches his second message in Acts 4. He preaches it after the lame man is healed. And we go into Acts chapter 5 and we read the response. 5,000 people got saved. Faithful Faithful believers can fall. Fallen believers can be forgiven. Forgiven believers can be fruitful. That's grace. That's God. That God can use you. Oh, by the way, do you want to know what happens? Those forgiven believers can be fruitful 
The fruitful believers can fall. Those fallen believers can be forgiven. Those forgiven believers can be fruitful again. Oh, and then those fruitful again believers can fall. And those fallen believers can be forgiven. And those forgiven believers can, can become fruitful again and again because of grace. No wonder he said it's amazing grace. Absolutely amazing that God would save us. Absolutely amazing that God would forgive us again and again and again. Why he does it, I don't know, but I'm sure glad he does. I don't know why he allows us a second and a third chance. I don't know, but I'm sure glad he does. I am so glad that we worship a God who is living in heaven and who is loving in heaven. A God who cares so much that he invites you to come to his table once again, to worship, to celebrate. But don't come with a heart that's filled with grievous sin, grievous to him. Don't come this morning with an attitude that you're the exception. You can harbor and you can hide and God doesn't know. God knows. In fact, God knows so much he warned the Corinthians that if you come to communion and you don't have a clean heart, you could die. Some are sickly among you and some are sleeping, he says. He takes this serious. Don't compound your attitude of, of rejecting Christ or rebelling against Christ. Come to this Christ who is willing to forgive you this morning.